Hi, this is Stephen G. Fullwood, and here's my quote on last week's episode on Jordan Peterson and him leaving Twitter. It doesn't take much thought to consider how social media is many things, good, bad, and different. It's a great way to stay in touch with relatives, but it's also a purveyor of myths and disinformation. It's a place where you might connect with a favorite writer or run into a Nazi enthusiast. So what I'm partly saying is not the platform itself, it's the people using the platform. It's about how you and I use the platform. We're always learning that even if you're not a public person, it can be disheartening how ruthless and angry and mean and disappointed the Twitterverse can actually be. It can make you feel small and significant like you have no life at all. Or conversely, it can make you feel like you are doing something when you issue a screed or scathing commentary about this, that, or the other. Not to mention, Twitter has the potential to disrupt your day and temperament. You might plan, on, plan to go on the platform for a few minutes that easily turns into an hour or longer, catching up on the quote news, unquote, which could range from actual celebrity news <laughs> to a number of things, to guess what happened to, oh my God, is this person dead? The rate of which I can go from happy to rage-filled to resigned impotence is whiplash fast and disorienting. After this past week's mass murder of children in Texas in Uvalde, Texas, I made the mistake of going on Twitter to learn more about the story. And of course, I was roundly disappointed and saddened, but also, I was also clear that I had chosen to do it. Culpability. There's a poignant meme that's gone viral for its circular reasoning. First, there is a shooting, then the outrage, then some kind of fight to change gun laws that fails miserably, and, 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 then, then, and then nothing. And then the next mass shooting, you get what I'm going. Mind you, this mass shooting was the only second massacre this month. On May 14th, an 18-year-old white man traveled to Buffalo, New York, entered a Topps Friendly Market store, a supermarket in the East Side neighborhood. He intentionally went to kill as many black people as possible, resulting in 10 deaths and three people who sustained injuries and so much fucking more. He live-streamed it on Facebook. This story fills me with such rage and helplessness that I cannot quite absorb it into my bloodstream just yet. So, where does Jordan Peterson fit into all of this? Well, Peterson's glorification of a past masculinity, gender hysteria, and a time before immigration is largely fear-based nonsense, but at worst, a racialized sentimentalism, sentimentalism that's always suspect. To me, the resistance to the very idea of a self-aware evolving male, people who choose their gender, and an understanding that the world is constantly changing, populations are moving, is a given, complicated, and nuanced issue. But not one to fear, one to think about and consider. For me, to meet life in fear with frothing, te frothing terror seems to be counterproductive as human beings who... I believe against their wills and wishes and best interest, I believe that people want to evolve. I believe people want to live. I believe people want to be with each other and to take care of one another. So when it comes to Peterson's, Peterson's bluster along with a number of other people, this trans people, boys wearing makeup, hipsters, and on the other side of that bell ringing is the insatiable, dumb, knuckle-dragging, hyper-masculine male, non-white, of course, He's invading our homes, our livelihoods, our innocence, our land, what was seized as white territory, along with our white women, etc., etc., etc. I often wonder what will 
happen to all the white men like Jordan Peterson who face a world that can no longer afford to center their needs, desires, and colonial sensibilities? What would these men do? Some of what we're seeing. If I know anything about the curtain crop of conservatives, and I include non-white people in this as well, is that they constantly tell me. They are quick to tell everyone and accuse perceived their perceived opponents, not even opponents sometimes, of things that they are often guilty of. For example, the child sexual abuse in churches. We have the church to thank for its constant denial and covering up of these ongoing scandals. So when Peterson goes running from the pla- he didn't go running from Twitter. Hold on for a second. He reportedly tweeted this. The endless flood of vicious insults is not really something that can be experienced anywhere else. I like to follow people that I know, but I think the incentive structure on, excuse me, incentive structure of the platform makes it intrinsically and dangerously insane. So I told my staff to change my password to keep me from temptation and I'm departing once again. If I have something to say, I'll write an article or make a video. If the issue is not important enough to justify that, then perhaps it would be best to just let it go. But Peterson, yes, you, Mr. Peterson, you seem to be experiencing cognitive dissonance. You have and continue to insult people on, the, on this platform and others and in your lectures. Let's be clear. A social media platform is many things. In fact, it has been instrumental in making more po- making you more popular than you probably would have been had it not existed. As a result, it's helped you sell books, increase attendance at your public talks, propagate your ideas and so on and so on. It's your bread and butter. It helps you make your bread and butter. But you already know this about this because you use the platform. Then there's a weird line you said about being tempted so your staff, uh, so you tell your staff to change your password. Well, dude, I mean, you can easily change your password, okay, without your staff knowing. That's not a hard thing to do. Like, you know, and we all know you're not going anywhere. You, like many pundits, influencers, trolls, and the like, need and create this platform to push your ideas out into the social media universe. You profit from the attention. You withstand being held accountable for your words and actions to stay on this platform. Right now, you're just pissed. It means too much to you to leave. It means too much for any of us to leave, whether we're spectators or participants. But I... I am excited by the idea of you in your own words. When the issue, when an issue arises, you say, perhaps it would be best to let it go. I mean, that sounds like a move towards maturity because I believe that most things we should fucking let go. Because social media, if it's taught us anything, it makes us think that we should have a should issue a comment when maybe we don't and probably don't have enough information or basically have anything of worth to say. Subjective, I know, but there's a lot of nonsense out there. Trust me. I'm searching for a word. It isn't sympathetic, but maybe it's pity. For all of your brilliance, Jordan Peterson, as if Jordan Peterson listens to the American Age, but hey, you never know. You, Jordan Peterson, come off as a stunted child trapped in a terrible stillborn, trapped in stillborn, terrible ideas that can't breathe or live in community with others. That's always a community that's always developing ideas, always changing, always growing. It's disappointing that you cannot and will not see that. But at least I'll say this. I can thank you for being yourself because you've shown me who you are. Hi, this is Seth Rodney. I'm speaking to you on Sunday, May 29th. And this is my note 
for the American Age podcast. In the last episode, we discussed the ways in which the anti-abortion movement uh, uh, have seized on uh, what um, Travis thinks is a, um, a fundamental flaw in the thinking of the progressives, which is that they were e- easily, well, they were easily dissuaded from the idea of bodily autonomy when it came to the uh, policy of mass vaccination or uh, uh, what's the what's the term for that it's um it's not mass it's um vaccine mandates uh, uh the argument was made during the podcast that <clears throat> uh my body my choice uh uh is is problematic because it doesn't uh actually uh hold to that principle of a bodily autonomy it only does so seemingly, uh, when uh, it's convenient. And I made the argument that it may not be a principle, it may be just uh, 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 a way of thinking about, a way of working through policy ideas so that we can get to principle. I'm not sure that we have, but I think where women's bodies are concerned, uh, the idea of bodily autonomy is crucial. Uh, it's just crucial to uh, the idea of, of women's autonomy uh, in a mostly, mostly patriarchal social uh, construction, or social um, uh, uh, um, I'm not sure what the word is, uh, I want to say that patriarchy governs most of the nation states and societies that we have in the world currently. Um, so I have a couple of things to say about that conversation. One is vis-a-vis the argument against the New York Times, they put out false information, Travis mentioned that they put out false information concerning the number of deaths that had happened due to um, lack of vaccination, I think, among a certain group of, uh, of, uh, children. And they, I think the same day put out a retraction. My rejoinder to that is, well, this Epic Times, uh, I don't know what to call it. It's not a journal. It's some, some sort of news outlet. Uh, they, they don't, according to Travis at least, don't print retractions. So I find that, Using them as a kind of as a way of developing a counter narrative to what's being positive as a mainstream narrative in the Times is not is not very useful or believable. They're not accountable to their readers in the same way that the New York Times is. They don't have someone who's willing to issue a retraction, or that apparently isn't their policy. So I don't. I don't see them as good faith actors. I mean, for me, they're just not part of the conversation on what we should be thinking about vis-a-vis any policy 
governmental otherwise. And two, I think that for me, the debate around pro-choice and anti-abortionists is that comes down to that there's certain sub superstitions, uh, such as the notion that uh, uh, a soul enters the the developing fetus at the, at the moment of conception, and that abortion equals murder. Uh, these are superstitions that dominate the anti-abortion movement, which is happy. It seems to me to put a grown woman, or in some cases a not-so-grown woman, in risk of losing her life, because childbirth is always risking that. Uh, and I'm wondering whether they are willing to do that in order to protect the life of the unborn, because they view the woman as kind of as flawed, as a sinner, as not worth as much. I mean, this, these are ridiculous superstitions. And, and this dovetails to me to a certain extent, because it's all kind of part of a kind of white settler patriarchal thinking. It dovetails with the superstition regarding uh, Second Amendment rights and gun control policies. This notion held by uh, some of the same people who would gladly uh, force a woman to bring an unwanted child to term. Some of the same people would uh, uh, rail against any sort of regulation on their rights to carry uh, uh, um, carry weapons, uh, guns, rifles, that and the like, um, because they really believe in this idea of, I think at core they believe in the idea of freedom without consequences or without harsh consequences for anybody for for anybody else. And there's a direct correlation between the ways that our freedoms are regulated and the degree to which other people are protected from harm. And the notion that uh, you can have sort of unregulated freedom, freedom without other people being harmed is a superstition, as far as I'm concerned. My principal position on these matters is that the idea of bodily autonomy is crucial, yes, but it has limits too, just as certain kinds of freedoms like being able to carry around weaponry uh, um, that can that can kill many many people uh, uh, in a matter of seconds um, should be should be regulated. I, I I think that we can regulate human behavior on principle, but the principle has to be nuanced in the matters of public health. I don't think it makes sense to. Uh, not mandate certain things. I think the mumps, measles, rubella vaccine being mandated for attendance at public schools is crucial. It just makes sense. And uh, you can have your bodily autonomy, but you don't get to participate in certain kinds of group functions with the rest of humanity because at that point I think you're too dangerous. The idea of danger has to be taken seriously. I don't think it's being taken seriously enough when we look at the anti-abortion movement or uh, the gun rights uh, lobby. And that's my note for today. I'm still going to be thinking about these issues, but um, where I am right now is that we 
are really lost in superstition. Good afternoon, good morning, or good evening, uh, and welcome to my note for this week's American Age podcast. Um, the side note, I think I can't quite make up my mind how I want to start my notes. I think I, um, I often do not use good afternoon, good morning, or good evening, which is what I always use when we're starting uh, the podcast uh, with Stephen and Seth. Um, so I think I probably just have to settle on some kind of introdu- uh, introduction. I, I think partly because I, um, you know, I don't know where I'll be in the order. So it seems weird if I come third in the note and I'm saying good afternoon, good morning, or good evening. It seems uh, out of place. That's obviously not what I'm going to talk about this week, but I just um, realized that as I did the intro, uh, I haven't settled on a, a format. So. Uh, it's Memorial Day weekend, um, and last uh, time, uh, Seth and Stephen and I continued our conversation about abortion, um, and then uh, jumped to um, a little bit of a conversation on Jordan Peterson and kind of objective his tweet or notion about objective beauty standards. And we have to say, I always feel slightly self-conscious when I introduce anything that I'm going to talk about and say and comment or critique or evaluate something that someone has said on social media, uh, mostly because I just don't find social media very weighty or considered, um, you know, certainly not considered the way an essay is, uh, or obviously not a novel or a nonfiction work. And in some ways, not even a conversation because, you know, obviously conversations happen very fast and you're back and forth and there's emotion involved in the back and forth, your own, and then your reading of the other person or persons that you're talking to. And so, you know, there's kind of a weight, just the weight of physical presence in that conversation and kind of the quick adjustments you can make. So social media itself is, is very, um, thin, like cellophane, I think in some ways, and I don't even mean to say it's it's purely uh, a bane on society. I think it's uh, super mixed, maybe hedging towards more negative than positive, Uh, maybe even not hedging, but more firmly in that category. Although I think we probably haven't quite figured out how we're going to use it yet. Um, But it made me, that led me to reflect on and think about, um, you know, what happened with Jordan Peterson in, in that comment about talking about, you know, kind of objective beauty standards and, uh, that, uh, the swimsuit, I I don't remember her name. I really should have looked it up before I started talking. I apologize. Um, the, uh, McKaylee or McKenna or the last uh, swimsuit model that is, you know, kind of Zoftic, you know, is larger, um, proportions than would have been on a typical swimsuit cover. Um, and I realized, you know, then that came from the conversation, you know, Seth and I spent a lot of time back and forth on the vaccine stuff and my trying to, I don't want to say pin him down, but kind of corral the conversation into something concrete because I think, uh, and I don't mean it in a nana, nana, nana way, but, um, I think it's pretty clear at this point in 2022, that many of my concerns and suspicions about the way that COVID were being handled ended up being correct. Not because I am, you know, 
uh, so insightful or anything like that. Um, probably a number of factors involved in it, but um, you know, all of the things that ended up being wrong that people were so sure about um, for so long, uh, whether it be bending the curve, uh, you know, the transmission or vaccines on transmission and yeah, it's whatever. I don't need to go into a long list of things. You guys are probably sick of COVID or hearing about COVID or you're fully invested in it and my rattling off various things that have uh, not borne, uh, the data has not borne out is just only going to irritate you. Um, so, you know, I, I don't want to go in that direction. But what I do want to say is that the thread that I want to draw together or that I want to trace between those two things, Peterson and, and the abortion thing, is that we're really, really bad and super uncomfortable at dealing with uncertainty. Um, we really need, uh, as humans, certainly as, as uh, humans engaged in culture making, um, we really need the firmament. We need some certitude. Um, and the reality, you know, we need certitudes around beauty standards. Well, they're biological underpinnings to beauty standards. Well, yeah, really, probably there just aren't. If you look, you know, if you've taken a, um, a freshman anthropology class um, or even just like, you know, spent a weekend on the Discovery Channel uh, or the National Nat Geo, the National Geographic Channel, or had a subscription, you will see that standards of beauty are anything but uh, rooted in what is optimal biologically. I mean, you know, lotus feet, you know, Chinese foot binding, for example, uh, super unhealthy for the women, um, not an advantage uh, it, to have broken feet and, and bound up uh, feet that keep you from being able to walk properly. This has nothing to do with what's healthy, right? It has nothing, it just, it's, it has nothing to do with that. Just for whatever reason, the culture, you know, Chinese culture evolved in that way during those periods of time, you know, four or 500 years. And the human historical record or prehistorical record, if you could go back that far, is undoubtedly littered with things that we found beautiful that had nothing to do with health or wellness. But you get the impulse, right? I mean, I get Peterson's impulse. You want there to be some firmament there. You want there to be something stable about how we organize our lives. We want clear guidance about how to stop ourselves from getting sick. You know, we want specific measures that can be undertaken to protect ourselves from getting sick, protect other people from getting sick, wearing masks, getting vaccines, isolating, quarantining, bending the curve, behaving responsibly, doing what we're supposed to do, right? We want these things desperately. We want these things to be true. We want them to work. We want to have some 
agency amidst the dizzying chaos of living in a body precariously on a planet, precariously circling a star in the middle of nowhere, right? We, we really, really, really want something to hold on to. Uh, and it's not that there's not anything to hold on to, right? There are all kinds of biological realities, uh, which we also seem to be have a hard time with right now and, and, and seem to want to, to reject. Uh, it's a slightly different topic, obviously. Um, but that's the common thread, right? That's the, that was me trying to corral Seth in that conversation, not necessarily Seth per se. It's not really about Seth, but it's about, you know, kind of the position he was taking in that conversation. Cause of course his opinions are far more capacious and nuanced than would even come out in that conversation, even though he and I are very close. Uh, he's my, you know, my best friend and, and Steven, I've grown very close to like, of course there are things that don't come out in that conversation. So I don't want to paint him into any particular kind of box. He doesn't belong in a box. The conversation is, you know, is an artifact, but at the end of the day, we want to know how to make our way in the world justly, fairly, respectfully. And we just have to kind of make it up as we go. And we have to, our culture is not very good at helping us marry humility with kindness, right? We can certainly marry kindness to our politics when we see others as part of our own tribe, as part of our own group, right? There are all kinds of mechanisms where America is actually a very charitable country if you are inside the fold of, uh, of a particular political movement, a particular religious affiliation. But we're really bad at marrying that kind of compassion and kindness to humility, that maybe what I want to do and maybe what I think and maybe what I believe might actually be wrong. Maybe what the other person thinks, maybe what the other person believes might actually be right. And I have to be kind to both. I have to be compassionate to both. I have to be understanding of the Trump supporter. I have to be sympathetic to um, AOC, I mean, you know, whatever, I'm just obviously, uh, uh, aping to political extremes. Um, and that's really, we don't, it's really hard for us. That's what I was going to say. And we don't have great secular maps for it. You know, uh, Christianity, uh, does Buddhism does Islam does, uh, you know, the, the kind of the traditions, the Lindy traditions, meaning like the, the traditions that have made it, you know, a thousand, two thousand, you know, uh, years, you know, even longer, if you're talking about Judaism, these are pretty, um, well-established durable traditions. And there's a reason for that. Uh, and I feel like secular culture in the United States hasn't really figured that out yet. We really don't know how to be kind to one another, even though we occupy different cultural spaces, even though we really don't see things the same way. We really don't. We don't agree on some fundamentals 
but we've got to figure out how to be kind to one another, even when that's true. Um, thanks very much. That's my note for this week. Uh, we'll catch up with you soon.